From NPR, this is Justice Talking. I'm Margo Adler. A trial by jury. It's a right written into the Constitution and a cornerstone of the American justice system. But it's a tradition not without controversy. Boy, can a group of 12 people who are drawn from all walks of life, who don't have any legal experience, or at least they're not required to have any legal experience, could they actually do a good job in deciding legal cases? An expert on the jury system delivers her verdict. We'll also look at those eye-popping punitive damage awards. Are civil juries modern-day Robin Hoods? After deliberation, they are much more interested in a high award than uh, the individual juror before they started to talk. On today's show, The American Jury, coming up after the news. This is Justice Talking from the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg Public Policy Center. I'm Margo Adler. On today's show, we look at the American jury, from the power of the grand jury to racial disparities in jury selection. But first, jury duty, that call to service that many Americans ignore. The National Center for State Courts found in a recent survey that nationally, less than half of people summoned show up for jury duty. Cornell Law Professor Valerie Hans co-authored the book American Juries, The Verdict. I asked her if this reluctance to serve on a jury is a modern phenomenon. No, absolutely not. It's uh, uh, it's kind of fun to read some of the old historical documents um, that talk about kings uh, issuing proclamations, insisting on uh, jury service from a broad swath of the uh, of of what they consider to be good jurors. Of course, th- those would be property men, but nonetheless, um, you you get the sense that uh, very early on. Uh, it was a little hard to get people to undertake what might well have been a much more onerous experience than we experience today when we serve on the jury. Uh, and, you know, there certainly are uh, lots of jokes about uh, how to get out of jury duty. And there's but, – but there's a reality. I mean, a lot of people are a bit apprehensive about it. And uh, there's, in fact, some research on why people feel – uh, ill at ease and uh, apprehensive and uh, concerned about uh, jury duty and, and think for uh, think about ways that they might get off. And um, what does the research show? Well, mostly they fear disruption and uh, perhaps also close encounters with people who are really different from you uh, and um, and close encounters with the legal system. And a lot of people are a bit concerned about. Um, that kind of close encounter, uh, nervous about talking to a judge. Many of them have never spoken to a judge in their lives uh, before they sit in the witness box and get examined uh, as uh, prospective jurors. Uh, now, one of the one of the positive things is that the research shows once you actually serve on a jury, you uh, look back and say, you know, it wasn't as disruptive as I thought it was going to be. It wasn't as negative as I thought it was going to be. Uh, people who haven't been very engaged with the community, people who vote infrequently, for example, uh, after jury service tend to become more likely voters. More, They vote more frequently. Uh, and there is a way in which the experience of sitting down with fellow citizens and deciding an important issue 
seems to engage people and bind them to their communities. If we could go back in time and look at America's earliest juries, I'm assuming that it would look far different from what we see today. Oh, yeah. Well, one of the things is that and this has been, I think, one of the most major changes in the jury system, even just in the last 50 years, is that today's juries are, uh, although not perfectly reflective of the population, at least include significant portions of it, like women, for example, that those early colonial juries wouldn't include, or uh, racial and ethnic minorities. Uh, the early juries here were almost en- entirely whites and men. Uh, and uh, they uh, they took a different approach to deciding. Uh, trials were very swift, uh, very quick. Many ended with a death sentence. And uh, so the, uh, justice was a, a fairly swift affair, but nonetheless a way for colonists to reflect uh, what they considered to be important values to adhere to in these early times. So when they talked about a jury being a jury of peers, they simply meant white male property owners at that time. Exactly. And now we've got women, and I guess we also have, for the first time, you know, and we also clearly have minorities. Yeah. I mean, it's, like I say, it's not perfect. I mean, there are some categories of cases, for example, death penalty cases, uh, where because women and especially African Americans have greater opposition to the death penalty, the capital jury is much less reflective of the public than uh, than the uh, community itself or, in fact, other kinds of juries. But it's much better than it used to be. So I think we're still striving. Even though most of the legal barriers to jury service have been removed, you write that the process of putting together the jury pool actually leaves out many Americans. And, and I've certainly noticed that uh, some people get called all the time and some people don't get called at all. How, how does that happen? Well, I'd li- I, I don't know exactly what uh, jurisdiction you were talking about here. It should be, at least the very base, should be a random process. And again, uh, jurisdictions are moving I think beyond where they were earlier, um, they usually do take lists of community members. Um, the basic list that most jurisdictions start with is the voters list. But sadly, the driver's license list in many communities is actually more representative of the population than the voters list. And so uh, what jurisdictions are now doing is supplementing the voters list with additional people who drive a car or at least have a license, um, even if they haven't registered to vote. After studying juries for a long time, you've come to the conclusion that the system on the whole gives us results that are pretty fair and balanced. So what would you say are its greatest strengths, the jury system? Well, I think one of the biggest strengths is fact-finding. And in fact, it's sort of interesting because when people think about juries, I think that's one of the things they're most concerned about. Boy, can a group of 12 people who are drawn from all walks of life who don't have any legal experience, or at least they're not required to have any legal experience, could they actually do a good job in deciding legal cases? And I think the pretty clear answer from 50 years of systematic research is yes, they can. And the reason is, number one, they are drawn from a broad group. So they have a collectively a wide um, array of skills, perceptions, 
and experience to draw on. Uh, and the other is they deliberate as a group. And that also seems to really enhance fact-finding. The research shows that when juries and uh, views are kind of compared to uh, judges' verdicts, uh, they um, actually overlap quite a lot. Uh, judges generally tend to support most of the jury verdicts, the vast majority of jury verdicts in their courtrooms. Despite its long tradition, you write that recent history has not been kind to the American jury and that it's under concerted attack. What do you mean by that? Well, I think the civil jury in particular is under a lot of attack. and um, For giving, think, uh, giving amounts of money that people think are too big or what? If if you just thought off the top of your head, hmm, what do I think about civil juries? Many people immediately think of Robin Hood, uh, uh, a group of people who will reach into the deep park pockets of corporations and give money to undeserving plaintiffs. I think there's a an idea that uh, the jurors are very generous and that they overcompensate uh, instead of being um, tight-fisted. And, and in our surveys and studies, we really haven't found that. We find that actually um, plaintiffs uh, get a pretty pretty tough uh, scrutiny by jurors. Uh, after all, they're drawn from the same community and jurors themselves, I mean, perhaps have this idea that uh, juries are supposed to be runaway juries and that um, they're going to um, they're going to uh, stand guard here and make sure only legitimate cases uh, are in fact compensated so besides the public perception is there a sense in your view that the media is attacking juries that politicians are attacking juries politicians don't really attack juries because jurors are voters uh, but uh, but they do pass laws restricting juries and they certainly respond to um uh, various interest groups that believe uh, particularly the civil jury should be constrained and reined in. So over the last couple of decades, that's really uh, ratcheted up where there have been lots of efforts to try to limit the damage awards that jurors make, uh, both for pain and suffering uh, and also punitive damages. And so uh, that has happened throughout the United States. A number of state legislatures have passed laws trying to place limits on what civil juries can award in a wide range of circumstances. Uh, and uh, I think that insurance companies and large corporations uh, fear juries. I'm not sure, based on my research, they actually need to fear juries, but they fear juries, they fear the unpredictability of it, uh, and um, they want to do everything they can to try to limit damage should they be facing a jury in a trial uh, in the future. Finally, I want to finish where we began and return to the past. In the 19th century, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote this about the American jury system in Democracy in America. The most energetic method of asserting the people's rule is also the most effective method of teaching them how to rule. What's your reaction? Well, I think that's one of the big purposes and benefits of having a jury trial system in our country. It educates us about what the legal system is all about. And so there's some way at least of having a reality-based experience or knowledge about the legal system instead of having the media convey to us what the legal system is all about. So, you know, the jury system has... Uh, you know, a whole host of uh, functions and values that it serves, the fact-finding being one of them, enhancing connection to the community uh, with 
uh, people being more likely to vote uh, if they serve on a jury, and then also being a highly legitimate way of resolving really contentious disputes in our society. Valerie Hans is a law professor at Cornell University and the co-author of American Juries, The Verdict. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. Coming up next, a conversation about the grand jury. A criminal defense lawyer argues the federal grand jury system is seriously flawed. In every other place in the criminal justice system, there are rules, and there are judges sometimes to supervise those rules. And here there is nothing but the whim of the prosecutor. And an ex-federal prosecutor says reforming the grand jury might involve a history lesson. De Tocqueville uh, characterized jury service as a free public school. Um, and I really think that if we can return to that view of the grand jury, uh, we'll be able to breathe life into this uh, institution uh, that many perceive to be failing us today. Stay with us. Justice Talking, the public radio show about law, justice, and American life. I'm Margo Adler. On today's show, we're talking about the American jury system. The Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution states that no person can be brought up on federal felony criminal charges without an indictment from a grand jury. A prosecutor presents his or her evidence against an individual, and then the grand jury decides if that person should be charged with a crime. Critics of grand juries say they no longer serve their historic role of protecting citizens from false accusations. Instead, they argue grand juries just rubber stamp the prosecutor's will. Here with me to talk about grand juries and grand jury reform are Roger Fairfax and Gerald Lefcourt. Roger Fairfax is associate professor of law at the George Washington University Law School. He's a former federal prosecutor who served in the criminal division of the U.S. Department of Justice. Gerald Lefcourt is a trial lawyer and past president of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. He co-chaired the organization's commission to reform the federal grand jury. Welcome both of you to Justice Talking. Thank you for having me. Yes, same here. Roger, you've written extensively on the history of the grand jury. What was the original intention of the federal grand jury? Why did the founding fathers include this in the Bill of Rights? Well, the grand jury uh, enjoyed considerable prestige at the time of the founding. Uh, colonial grand juries really stood as a check on uh, royal authority um, and resisted prosecutions of the crown, um, famously in, in, in some cases, and um, in uh, matters uh, very near and dear to the hearts of those who uh, eventually would frame the Constitution. And so uh, it wasn't surprising that the grand jury made its way into the Bill of Rights. The federal grand jury has increasingly become a tool for investigation. What has that meant for the power and function of the grand jury, Roger? 
Well, well, certainly, uh, you know, the, the, the take uh, many and I think most would uh, would uh, uh, have with regard to the grand jury is that it, it, it has become an investigative tool and, and that role has overshadowed its role as shield uh, for citizens against the power uh, of the government. Um, and uh, certainly, uh, if, if anything, uh, aside from the fact that it is uh, in the Bill of Rights, uh, it has cemented its uh, place in our criminal justice process because it, it, it's just too powerful a tool to uh, to forego uh, through extensive uh, grand jury reform. And I know we'll, we'll talk about more uh, more the nuances regarding grand jury reform. Jerry, the grand jury was originally intended as a way to sift out weak cases to protect citizens against false or unfounded accusations. You've you've called for extensive reforms to the grand jury system, and, and I know you believe it gives too much power to prosecutors. So is the grand jury system no longer living up to its intended goals? I think that there's really broad agreement now, and it is sort of evidenced in the report that we did with many former United States attorneys and Department of Justice figures who all join in in saying, in effect, that, it, that its protective function, that's to protect citizens, really has really been trivialized and that now it, the opposite is true. It has become a tool of the prosecutor over the last 200 years. It doesn't protect citizens. It really investigates citizens. But the problem has been that in its change over the last 200 years, there are basically no rules. There's no law that protects the citizens in any way from the grand jury investigative function. And so the reform movement seeks to institute sort of basic fairness issues that as long as we're going to have a powerful investigative body like the grand jury, that it be done consistent with the values that this society cherishes which is fairness and due process. Roger, how do you answer Jerry's argument that the grand jury has gone from being a check on the power of prosecutors to giving more power to prosecutors? Uh, well, I, I think that's a common perception, and, and I, uh, to a certain extent, uh, share that uh, view. And um, uh, I, I think uh, when we look at grand jury reform, I think pulling back and, and looking at some of the fundamental questions about the role of the grand jury in our criminal justice system will help to uh, facilitate uh, some of those specific changes um, that uh, uh, many seek uh, and also uh, make the grand jury a much more robust uh, piece of our uh, process. Well, well, let me ask you, Jerry, why is it dangerous for prosecutors to have more power? Um, <laughs> because people uh, once charged, uh, once a grand jury indicts, in many cases, particularly uh, of people who have any notoriety or corporations, it is a death knell to them. Just the announcement of a federal indictment's charges is enough to destroy somebody's life. And that power, with no protections and no fairness in the process, is really dangerous and has become more and more obviously dangerous. You take the indictment of uh, the Anderson accounting firm, uh, you know, that just ended, uh, you know, thousands of- Ended the company, ended the company. It was the death knell. Take, for instance, you know, the number one reform. There are many reforms proposed but just the right to have counsel in the grand jury. I mean, 
you know, there is something like 21 states in their state grand juries that allow counsel without any interruption of the grand jury process. And it allows somebody to have the advice of counsel at probably the most important moment in their life when they're a witness in front of a federal grand jury. And this simple reform, uh, which is advocated by so many and for so long, uh, would do a lot to provide some kind of law uh, instead of this lawlessness that exists in the federal grand jury. And before I let Roger respond to this, um, since grand jury proceedings aren't a trial, why is it important for a lawyer to be there? Well, it's certainly not to have any public role in the grand jury. The lawyer doesn't say anything in the grand jury in the 21 states that, that, that people have a right to counsel in state grand juries. What the lawyer's role is, is simply to have the witness consult by whispering with the lawyer before answering a question. What happens now when lawyers are not permitted, uh, the witness will say, uh, you know, in response to a question, can I go talk to my lawyer outside? who's standing outside the grand jury. Now, the witness then has to remember what's been going on in the grand jury and disrupt the grand jury proceedings by going out over and over and over again. It's kind of silly. So, you know, the role of counsel is not to object or say anything. Indeed, the, the reform that we propose specifically says that they shall say nothing in the grand jury, but just be allowed to consult with the client. Roger, do you have any problems with this kind of reform? Well, I, I uh, appreciate the spirit of the uh, proposed reform and um, it, uh, obviously favor um, the due process um, uh, elements of, of reform in, in this direction. Uh, one problem that, that those of us interested in reform uh, have to um, overcome is, uh, is a second element. So we talked about the uh, fact that a, a lawyer, at least some argue, a lawyer in the grand jury will chill efficiency and, and create satellite litigation and make it more adversarial, much like a trial. Um, the other problem, though, is uh, in cases where there's, for instance, a corporate whistleblower or a lower level player in an organized crime case. Um, the fear is that the higher ups will pay for a lawyer to, to sit in on the grand jury proceeding and make sure the witness does not stray from the party line. And obviously this raises concerns uh, regarding truthfulness of testimony and witness intimidation. Um, and I think that those of us interested in, in this reform have been less persuasive in addressing this particular um, concern. Uh, we've um, uh, made the argument that any attorney who would do such a thing could be sanctioned or disbarred. Um, however, and, and I think some have argued persuasively, that's little comfort to that witness who fears for uh, her livelihood or, or her, her life in certain instances. And so I think this is a tougher challenge for us. Jerry. Well, then, Margo, I mean, you know, uh, I understand what Roger's saying, and, and it's obvious a fair concern. But, you know, in the infinitesimal number of cases where that could possibly be true, and it really is infinitesimal, uh, you know, there, is, there are ways to address that. And prosecutors have gone before judges to get lawyers disqualified because of them playing such a... Uh, ignomous uh, role, you know, indeed, an illegal role. Um, and, you know, so we, so we can't set up a system, uh, uh, you know, that deals with the infinitesimal possibility that some lawyer will be dishonest and be there to serve the interests of somebody else. 
when, you know, the overwhelming uh, amount of witnesses before the grand jury, that's not the case. So we shouldn't set up a system to deal with things that almost never occur. Roger, let me take up another issue, um, uh, the issue of how evidence is used in the grand jury system. As I understand it, prosecutors can use evidence in a grand jury that might not hold up in an actual trial. The prosecutor can present evidence that was perhaps unlawfully obtained and that in an actual trial might be thrown out. Um, That sounds a little problematic. If you can't use the evidence to get a conviction, why should you be able to use it to get an indictment? Right, right. And and there are some categories of evidence um, that is not properly presented to a grand jury, uh, certain statutory um, uh, uh, segments, uh, Title III, bankruptcy, uh, certain bankruptcy proceedings. But everything else, as you said, is, is admissible. And, and I think critics of this reform would argue um, that a prosecutor has no interest in using this sort of evidence when uh, she knows she would not be able to use it uh, at trial. That's essentially setting yourself up for failure. In this age where very few cases actually go to trial, a grand jury indictment might serve as significant leverage for the government in plea negotiations. Well, let me ask you this, Jerry. The Supreme Court ruled on on part of this question, at least, the question of evidence and the grand jury in the early 1970s. And the court essentially said, as I understand it, that the same rules of evidence that apply to courtrooms don't necessarily apply to the grand jury. Yes. And so I'm assuming you have a problem with that. But is that settled law then? Yes, it is settled law. But you know, needless to say, you know, a federal reform movement could pass statutes that would require uh, you know, evidence, competent evidence to be presented before a grand jury. Uh, that, uh, I, I should add, has not yet been one of the reforms that have all been agreed upon in this report of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, but it is a, you know, really important thing to address. Why should something that would not be admissible in court, for instance, such as a witness's thinking about somebody or some hearsay statement, Why should that be presented to a grand jury to obtain an indictment of somebody which will be in in effect the destruction of that individual or corporate entity's life uh, when it wouldn't be admissible at trial? It just doesn't make any sense. And in many states, you know, there are rules that prevent incompetent evidence, illegally seized evidence, the right to counsel in a grand jury, the right to testify. Many, many states have all of these procedural protections, and nobody is complaining. The prosecutors of those states are not up in arms that, you know, it has disrupted their ability to investigate a ferret out crime. And I think the same would be true for the federal grand jury if they would allow these reforms to take place. Jerry, we've talked about evidence. We've talked about the right to have a lawyer present. What other reforms do you want? Well, some very simple things. Anybody who is a target of a grand jury should have the right to go before the grand jury and tell their side of the story. Uh, Right now, that can't be done. And also, uh, people who um, are going to assert a constitutional privilege before a grand jury shouldn't be called before the grand jury and be the spectacle of taking the Fifth Amendment uh, in front of the grand jury. And also, if the prosecutor wants to subpoena somebody, they sometimes, and you know, not all prosecutors do this by any means, but many sub- subpoena somebody forthwith, meaning they don't have time to get counsel or seek advice, 
And we would prefer that uh, there at least be 72-hour notice before any appearance. And also another basic thing is that the grand jurors should be given meaningful jury instructions on the record that can be reviewed by a court about their duties, their powers as grand jury, and also about the charges they are considering. None of these things exist. This is the most lawless body that we have in our criminal justice system. In every other place in the criminal justice system, there are rules, and there are judges sometimes to supervise those rules. And here there is nothing but the whim of the prosecutor. Roger, how would you respond to those reforms, and what reforms would you make uh, to the grand jury system? Well, I, I think uh, uh, Jerry's uh, uh, proposed reforms, or the ones he referred to, all make sense. All make sense. I, you know, DOJ has had a steady uh, drumbeat of opposition to these uh, reforms uh, for quite some time, um, uh, and also in the form they they took before the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers Bill of Rights. So going back to the Ford administration, you've had testimony from uh, Department of Justice officials um, opposing all of these uh, reforms. Now, when I say opposing these reforms, I think we we have to to be careful. Uh, in, in some instances. Uh, the department um, has said that, hey, we're, we're doing this our, our, ourselves. We, uh, for instance, with regard to exculpatory evidence, um, we police ourselves here. We have internal guidelines um, of requiring the disclosure of exculpatory evidence to the grand jury. Now, obviously, the, the argument against that is that, you know, why should we rely on the prosecutor um, uh, to uh, police itself and, and that there should be a law ensuring the disclosure of exculpatory evidence? And that's exactly what the reform movement is trying to do. What do you see as the strengths of, of federal grand juries today? Well, I think its, it's, it's strength is, is hiding in, in plain view, as it's been said. Um, it is uh, one of the unique opportunities to bring together citizens from the community um, and to, to have them available um, uh, to give feedback to the government. Um, guidance on the merits or, or jury appeal of a contemplated prosecution, um, enforcement priorities for a particular community, um, and for the grand jurors, from their perspective, civic engagement, much like voting. Uh, De Tocqueville uh, characterized jury service as a free public school. Um, and I really think that if we can return to that view of the grand jury, uh, we'll be able to breathe life into this uh, institution uh, that many perceive to be failing us today. That was Roger Fairfax, associate professor of law at the George Washington University Law School. Gerald Leftcourt also joined me. He's a trial lawyer and past president of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Coming up, we look at racial disparities in jury selection. That's actually a fairly common problem, especially in urban areas. Typically what we'll see is, um, you know, lower percentages of African American um, and in those communities that have larger Hispanic communities under representation by Hispanics as well. Also, a jury consultant describes the type of person he never wants to see seated on a jury, someone who just doesn't want to be there. Very dangerous to have a juror like that on a case um, because they may, in fact, want to go home and eat dinner and not deliberate. Stay with us.
Justice Talking is produced by the Annenberg Public Policy Center, a think tank at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. The program is made possible with support from the Annenberg Foundation. The foundation works to advance public well-being through improved communication. Additional support comes from NPR member stations and West Legal Ed Center, where lawyers can listen to Justice Talking for MCLE credit online at westlegaledcenter.com. And from Oxford University Press, publisher of the United States Constitution, what it says, what it means, a hip pocket guide. The hip pocket constitution is available at justicetalking.org. This is NPR National Public Radio. Justice Talking has entered the blogosphere. Each day, check out a new commentary from one of our contributors who cares passionately about law and justice issues. At justicetalking.org, you can also find forums where you can weigh in on the issues we cover on Justice Talking, like the environment, criminal justice, religious freedom, and elections. Continue the debate online with other Justice Talking listeners at justicetalking.org. This is Justice Talking, where we make the connection between law, justice, and American life. I'm Margot Adler. On today's show, The American Jury. Mark Hauser, a reporter for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review, found that in 2002, while 11% of Allegheny County in Pennsylvania was black, they made up just 4% of those serving jury duty. Hauser reports on this continuing racial disparity and recent efforts by the court system to diversify the jury box. All rise. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay, all manner of persons having aught to do before the honorable judges. Court of Common Pleas, Criminal Division, holding here this day in and for the County of Allegheny. Make your presence known, give your attention, and you shall be heard. God Every weekday morning in Pittsburgh, about 100 people come to this room in the Allegheny County Courthouse for jury duty. Judge Donna Jo McDaniel heads the court's Criminal Division. She reminds them how important their service is. Our criminal justice is and will remain the best system of criminal justice in the world. This means that everyone who is accused of a crime is given a chance to be judged by people who are his peers. What does that mean exactly? What is a jury of your peers? According to the Supreme Court, it means a fair cross-section of the community. But in Pittsburgh, like a lot of courts across the country, that cross-section doesn't always look so fair. Calvin Sales, a police officer and potential juror, noticed right away. I think you're the only African-American guy in the room today. Yes. Did you notice that? Tell me yes, what, I did. What, did. what went through your mind when you walked in and saw it? It's a little different. I mean, that's a part of Pittsburgh, too, and Allegheny County. I mean, I'm used to it, but it's still not real comfortable. A lack of minority representation in the jury box isn't just an issue in Pittsburgh. Paula Hannaford Agor is director of the Center for Jury Studies at the National Center for State Courts in Williamsburg, Virginia. That's actually the fairly common problem, especially in urban areas. Typically what we'll see is, um, you know, lower percentages of African American um, and in those communities that have larger Hispanic communities under representation by Hispanics as well. Pittsburgh defense attorney Frank Walker says while he's aware of the problem, in his experience, he just tries to select the best jurors possible. I don't particularly look for African Americans. I just, I go in with the intent of picking the fairest 14 individuals who are willing to sit there. But I do notice that there are very few African Americans sitting in the, in the selection pool. Now, the cause of that, I don't know. 
The Center for Jury Studies surveyed courts across the country about how they get people for jury duty. The biggest problem is reaching poor people who are disproportionately minorities. For one thing, they may not be registered to vote or licensed to drive, and those lists are where most courts look for potential jurors. The center's Hannaford Agor says poor people move more often, so they're harder to find, and they're more likely to skip jury duty if the courts do find them. The people who are you know, just struggling to keep their job, keep a roof over their head, keep their, their families fed, um, when the jury summons comes, that's not real high on their priority list. Back at the Allegheny County Courthouse, Kim Reeves, a black woman who works for a bank, says she resents being here. She'd rather be home caring for her sister, who has multiple sclerosis. Because I'm angry right now, and I don't much care about nobody else. The only thing that's on my mind is, is my sister going to be all right today? That's the only thing on my mind right now, and that's not a good frame of mind to be if I'm sitting somewhere and have to decide someone else's fate. But after talking with some other potential jurors, Reeves reconciles herself to being here. I've tried to, I don't want to say get out of it. Well, yeah, that's the reality of it. I've tried to get out of it several times, and this was it for me. This was the end of the road for me. It was clear to me when I came in this morning, okay, you're done for the day. Stop trying it, because it is your civic duty, and it's something that you should do. In Pittsburgh over the past several years, the court has tried several remedies. Potential jurors who don't respond to a summons get a phone call and an offer to reschedule. There's now free daycare for jurors' kids. And President Judge Joseph James started summoning extra jurors from neighborhoods with larger-than-average black populations. Court Administrator Ray Billet. This goes to the quality of justice that we're providing to the citizens of our community. So we have to fix it. So let's get on with doing it. Since implementing those changes, the courts have found the number of blacks serving jury duty in Pittsburgh has doubled from 4 to 8 percent. And last year, Pennsylvania passed a law that gives courts access to names and addresses from state income tax returns and welfare rolls to supplement the driver's license and voter registration lists. Courts in Georgia, Massachusetts, and other states also are trying to correct racial imbalances in their jury pools. Paula Hannaford-Agor says they're not just doing this for appearances. What we know about jury decision-making from various empirical studies is that diverse juries actually do a better job during deliberations. The deliberations are more thorough. The recollection of the evidence and testimony is more accurate. Um, and the jurors actually do a, a much more in-depth um, and thorough look at the entire case and come out with a better verdict. For Ray Billet, there's another reason the courts want a fair cross-section of Allegheny County citizens serving jury duty. It goes to the confidence that the public has in their court system. If we are not providing jury, uh, jury of one's peers, then we're not providing ample justice services. And I think when we do that, we show the public that we're committed to it. They have confidence in what we're doing then. This is Mark Hauser for Justice Talking. Earlier in the show, we heard from Cornell law professor Valerie Hans. She says civil juries are less like Robin Hood and more like Scrooge, and that civil juries perform reasonably well in deciding punitive damage awards. But my next guest, University of Chicago law professor Cass Sunstein, argues that there's little sense to the way civil juries determine the dollars. He co-authored the book Punitive Damages, How Juries Decide. 
So our basic experimental finding is if you put, put a group of Americans before a problem, uh, they tend to agree on how severe the problem is or the misconduct. If a company has done something wrong, they agree it's either very wrong or a little wrong or not wrong at all. Those things they understand. But to assign dollar amounts to wrongness, they have a hard time doing in any consistent manner. So if you have a case where a kid's pajamas went on fire, everyone agrees that's pretty bad. But whether in terms of punishment that's worth 10000 or 50000 or 100000 or a million, uh, people have a hard time thinking about that. And that, we think, is, is a real source of unfairness in the system. Now, aren't punitive damage awards subject to review by a judge who does serve as a check to an overzealous jury? Yes, and I should say I'm as concerned with underzealous juries as with overzealous juries. So there are a lot of people who have been hurt badly by terrible misconduct who are getting amounts that are too small, and that's as significant a problem as the overzealous jury. Uh, the judge, by the way, is not very good at correcting the underzealous jury under our legal system. The judge is typically not permitted, uh, at least in the federal system, to knock up the award. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, insofar as we have a problem of an overzealous jury, you're right, the judge does provide a corrective, and that, that is a definite help. But if you look at the full universe of awards, even after the judicial correction, you'll see that some people get big awards, hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, millions, when other people who are similarly situated are getting much lower amounts. And no one, I don't think, who was designing a legal system from scratch would find that uh, uh, something to be happy about or something to continue. So you're arguing that juries are very effective, for instance, determining guilt or innocence, but when it comes to money, it should be who, the judge? Well, I'm really trying to figure out what uh, what we know about how human beings act, and, and I want to do that first and foremost before making a, a recommendation. So what we've tried to do over the years is to understand what, what the system is producing, and we think we know that it's producing a high degree of inexplicable inconsistency. Whether judges would be better is a, is a nice question. I fear that if the, the awards were transferred from juries to judges, uh, we'd get also levels of inconsistency. Jur- judges are human, too. So what I think we ought to be doing if we're worried about inconsistency, some awards are too low, other awards are too high, is to think of ways to discipline both juries and judges uh, to counteract these problems. One way you might do it on the judicial side is by asking judges to engage in sensible comparisons so that if they're knocking down an award, they better have to show that there are other cases in which the award was low or knocked down. Now, I know you did several studies uh, that were conducted for your book using mock juries. What were some of the more interesting conclusions that you drew from those studies? Um, I'll tell you some that I found uh, fun. One is that if you get deliberating juries together, uh, after deliberation, they are much uh, more interested in a high award than uh, the individual juror before they started to talk. So we showed or found a systematic shift toward greater punitiveness by juries than jurors. In fact, in 27% of our cases, the jury came in with an award that was at least as high and often higher than the award favored 
by the most punitive person on the jury before they started to talk. So the fact that the interaction among jurors made people much more punitive, much more extreme in their enthusiasm for a high award, that was an interesting finding, and I at least didn't anticipate that. The other interesting finding to me, most interesting one, is if you get a, a case involving, let's say, uh, an exercise machine that injures somebody or a baldness cure that doesn't work or uh, clothing that gets on fire, uh, people tend to agree about how bad it is morally. Americans across all demographic lines tend to agree about the badness of the conduct. But uh, they really disagree sharply about the appropriate damage award for that conduct. So we found a moral, a kind of moral consensus, uh, comforting moral consensus, where whites agree with African Americans and rich agree with poor and old agree with young and well-educated agree with poorly educated. A lot of consensus about the underlying moral issues, how bad is misconduct morally. That was University of Chicago law professor Cass Sunstein. He co-authored the book Punitive Damages, How Juries Decide. When people picture what jury consultants do, they may think of John Grisham novels where lawyers rely on an expert to select potential jurors most likely to rule in their favor. We decided to sort fact from fiction. What do these consultants do when it comes to selecting jurors? Dr. Gil Calvillo is a director in the Trial Services Group of FTI, a forensic and litigation consulting practice, or more simply put, he's a jury consultant. Welcome to Justice Talking. Thank you, Margo. Your biography states that your clinical background provides, quote, a unique insight into the cognitive, emotional, and personality functioning of individuals such as jurors, judges, and witnesses. What do you mean by that? Well, clearly, um, I'm always in a mode of assessment, taking into account someone's intellectual functioning, their psychological function, personality factors, and I'm always concerned about whether or not a person is going to be able to learn and process information, someone's going to be able to listen to all of the evidence. And so my clinical background has stood me in very good stead to be able to you know, assess these kinds of variables very quickly and dynamically. And can you really tell if someone has the capacity to learn and, and grow and sort of understand a case more fully as it goes on? Is that really something you can do? Well, you know, clearly I need a, a questionnaire that I usually draft that jurors will fill out. You know, I, I get a sense of how someone can formulate their thoughts, how they answer the question, whether or not they're answering the question at all. So I'm concerned whether or not they're guarded or defensive uh, or if they're hiding something, as well as whether or not they're misspelling words, if they're omitting words. That, to me, would indicate someone may have difficulty you know, with comprehension or learning disabilities. And so those things are very important to me as I'm selecting a juror. Without mentioning names or, or the cases, what signs do you look for? Can you tell us some stories, some, some factors that, that turned out to be most predictive of, of the kind of person that you wanted to, to decide a verdict? You know, every venue is different. And so what I try to do is try to understand through research that, that particular uh, personality of the venue. And so... Prior to doing uh, jury selection, conducting jury selection, we do focus groups and mock trials. And we also write surveys that help us with trying to uh, assess that particular venue's perception of the litigant, perception of the overall story and case. 
and that's very helpful. So, in other words, uh, I don't know, I'm living in New York City, for example. That kind of a venue would be different than, let's say, oh, I don't know, Kane County, Illinois. You bet. Absolutely. And so, with that said, you know, there are socioeconomic factors that I need to take into account. There are race and cultural issues that need to be taken into account. In addition to that, there are cognitive and personality and psychological factors that need to be taken into account. Like what? I mean, how does that change from venue to venue? Well, you know, it really depends on what's going on in that venue. For example, you know, in some of the more uh, high-profile, prominent cases that are that are going around the country right now, as you know, um, that will help shape perception and opinion. And so I want to assess that perception and opinion. A friend of mine just told me about her recent jury experience. She said that most of the people in the jury room exuded a sense of disinterest, even downright annoyance at having been called to jury service in the first place. And, you know, the old adage is that some cases get decided because jurors want to go home for dinner. Um, doesn't that present you with a challenge? And how do you get beyond that? It always presents with a challenge because most people don't like to serve. And, and frankly, I don't want, and, and my counsel doesn't want anybody who doesn't want to be there. It presents a wild card situation. What I mean by that is that, you know, again, if you've got a juror that doesn't want to be there to begin with, they're going to get annoyed about anything. And it's very dangerous to have a juror like that on a case. Um, because they may, in fact, just want to go home and eat dinner and not deliberate. And, and you know, in our voir dire, I encourage counsel to really make that connection and, and try to elicit that information that, you know, if you don't want to be here, please let us know. And those that, that you know, that are annoyed and who want to go home and have their dinner, you know, I, I would want them to not be on the jury. Dr. Gil Calvillo is a director in the Trial Services Group of FTI, a forensic and litigation consulting practice. Thank you so much for coming on our show. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much, Margo. What do you think about jury duty, punitive damages, or race in the jury system? Let us know at justicetalking.org. You can post on our message boards, learn more about our guests, and sign up for our free podcast. And check out our blog where many of the nation's leading commentators give their views on law and American life. Finally, I want to say goodbye to a valued member of our production staff, Julie Mayshack. All of us at Justice Talking wish her well. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll tune in next week. I'm Margo Adler. Justice Talking is produced by Ingrid Lakey, Cara McGurk, Viet Le, Julie Mayshack, and Judy Jarvis. Gary Gaiman is our webmaster. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. Engineering by Audio Post Philadelphia. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the Annenberg Public Policy Center or National Public Radio. This is NPR's Justice Talking. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people online at wtgrantfoundation.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, featuring the book Good Capitalism, Bad Capitalism, and the Economics of Growth and Prosperity at kauffman.org. And from the Kresge Foundation, investing in nonprofits to help them catalyze growth, connect to stakeholders, and challenge greater support on the web at kresge.org. This is NPR, National Public Radio.